It is a rare treat when you get to quote your own wife as the introduction to a sermon. But she said something this week online that I thought was not only true and poignant, but which I think will orient us to what we're talking about today. And she said, my waking thought this morning was that our children are watching us every day close up, bird's eye view. They're watching to see how we respond to difficulties and suffering in our country. They're watching and listening to what we say about the different narratives that we're being told. They want answers just like us. I hope that through all of this, my children will be better prepared for what life brings us, which is many trials and tribulations. If we don't prepare them, it will be quite a shock when they find out life is anything but fair, and life is really hard and ugly sometimes. This is one reason I believe the gospel is true. It gives us the answers and equips us to face all these things. May my children see that in their mom and their dad and our church. That is a sermon in itself, um, one that I, even I couldn't preach. But it is as true of the fact that our children are watching us these days, whether they're our children or someone else's children, what is also true is that we're being watched by a whole world. And especially if we profess a belief in Jesus, not to make too much of ourselves, but I would like to suggest that we are perhaps even under greater scrutiny in this day. We are being watched for not only what we say, but how we say it. We are being observed for how we respond to one another and how we respond to others. And in a season like this, where we are under pressure, our public conduct is perhaps never more crucial because we're being watched. Because the credibility of what we say we believe is in some ways on trial. On trial in and through the conduct that they see us in public demonstrate. We're listening to Peter, the Apostle Peter. And we're listening to a letter that he wrote to churches that were under pressure. Not under the pressure of a virus, not under the pressure of social upheaval and social change, but under the pressure of being perceived as strange. Strange for what they believed, strange for how they acted, strange for how they treated one another and each other. And in that season, when they might be tempted simply to disengage or retreat into their little enclave of belief, Peter says unto them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Or to maybe update his thinking there, keep your conduct among a watching world that finds you perplexing, if not bewildering, if not a little bit unsettling, keep your conduct among them honorable. Why? Why is that so crucial? And more importantly, what are the best motivations for operating under, to, to seek out that honorable conduct? Because there's a whole host of defective motivations but Peter is going to give us four really sound ones. He's going to show us why it's so crucial to keep that honorable conduct public. So we're going to listen to those four ways. We're going to sift through them to understand what it means to live honorably in this day. So I wonder if you might listen carefully to what he has to say. Our central text for today is to be found in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. First thing we need to consider is what does Peter even mean by honorable conduct? He doesn't really define it here. Um, for the next few weeks, we're going to be listening to him offer several specific examples. But right here, he's keeping it just very broad. He's keeping it very general. And yet, I think if you think about the setting into which he's writing, it's not, it's not a, a big leap to imagine what does he mean by honorable conduct. And that all comes down to what are these churches facing in that day? We've said it from the beginning of this series and the beginning of this worship hour. They were seen as those who were strange, strange for what they believed. And not only were they perceived as such, they were treated as such. And when you're treated as those who are outsiders, then you encounter all sorts of things like prejudice, like mistrust, like marginalization, like mistreatment. It happens across the board in more ways than you and I could count. And in moments like that, for them, and we could imagine any number of moments like it true for us, what's your first instinct when you're being treated like that? Your first instinct maybe is to disengage, just to separate yourself. Or your instinct might be to revile, to heap recrimination, to retaliate. You might put it under the broad heading of revenge, and that's what you're tempted with in that day, and, and Peter is saying, no, keep your conduct among those who do not understand you and who think you strange. Keep it honorable. Keep it honorable. Look, in our day, uh, you and I are inundated with information, and uh, given the circumstances we find ourselves in, we're more isolated than we've ever been accustomed to being. And in that isolation, all sorts of things happen to our imagination. We begin to fill in the blanks and fill in the gaps of why we think people are saying what they're saying, and we ascribe motives to them that may or may not be right. And in that season, the atmosphere is such that even if you say the slightest controversial thing, things have shifted. And now, not only will you be disagreed with if it even gets that kind, now you're just going to be shouted at or condemned. That's where we are. And you are prone in a season like that, in an atmosphere like that, to, to respond to the pushback with a little bit of a shove of your own. It is understandable, and yet that's our temptation, and yet we have to be reminded, like my wife does, like Fred Rogers does, we're being watched. We're being watched by all sorts of things. And, and even in saying that, it, it is not to to suggest that whatever guilt you might feel by being seen by children or a world in an unfavorable way, it's not about guilt that's meant to motivate us. In fact, Peter is offering us a rather wholesome, sound first motivation, and it comes down to, first of all, to something about our identity. Now, we talked about this at length last week. We're going to talk about it a little less uh, this week, but in verse 9, you may remember how Peter characterizes those who have a belief in Jesus, who have a, a solidarity of identity with one another. They are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're gonna, we're gonna camp out just on that first one here, a chosen race. Race is a big word. Race is a word we typically define of as, as a shared characteristic, a shared heritage based on a shared ancestry. And um, to, for, for race to operate in those terms, what Peter is actually out to tell us is that if you're a member of the church, then you're a member of a race that all has its common origin in God. In which case, you are a race of races. You are a people of peoples. You're a family of families. And, and what, what unites you is not only that you come from diverse backgrounds. What is also true is that what you are united in is that you are no longer estranged. That those who were formerly estranged are now part of this chosen race. Look, God chooses the Jews to be his people, but from the very beginning of that storyline, it is anticipating um, that community, that race, being a light unto those who had no background in their ancestry, those who were Gentiles. To be a light unto the Gentiles, you find throughout the Old Testament. But even in Psalm 87, you should read that psalm sometime. The psalmist rattles off a number of nations, a number of races. Rahab, which was a shorthand for Egypt, and Tyre, and Cush, and Sihon. And what all of those nations had in common is that they were enemies of Israel. And yet in Psalm 87, it envisions a day when all of those nations will, have found, will be found to have their root, their source, their origin, their family in the people of God. That is this race of races that forms our identity if we're to understand ourselves properly. And therefore, there is no one race that holds any superiority or any other. And therefore, to assert or assume that has to be refuted at every opportunity. But let's talk about the chosen part of the chosen race designation of our identity. If you believe yourself to be chosen, then you believe yourself that not, you, didn't, you didn't choose God. You didn't impress God. You were chosen because he chose you. He chose you because of his mercy, because of his choice. And if you are chosen, then in that sense you are precious. Not simply tolerated. Not simply admitted into the house with a certain begrudging look. You are precious. Do you believe that? You are precious. And that's why he will end his little litany of designations of our identity by saying we are a people for his own possession. The, the King James Bible uses that word there, uh, possession, for we're a peculiar people. Not weird, but having a unique regard in God. I've, I've told you the story before about my children when they were younger. If there was a, a particular gift for which they had a a special appreciation, and another wanted to lay their hands on it, they would, uh, they would say, uh, uh, th this one is special to me. Tr translation, hands off, bub. Uh, in that moment, those things had a particular, um, they had a particular regard for it, and that is the way the Lord looks upon those who are part of his church. He has a special care and concern, a special regard. And therefore, if you're chosen and you're precious, what does that entail or, or what, what, is, what does that lead to? It not only defines how you think of yourself, but it's also meant to reshape 
the way you think about how others think about you. Because sort of the, the test to whether or not you believe that you are a chosen race is in those moments when people are thinking of you as something less than human or uh, pond scum or uh, not to be trusted or considered, uh, the extent to which you are okay with that because you believe that you are precious is the extent to which you believe that you in fact are, that you're chosen. If you believe that God believes you are precious, then it's really okay if others think that you're mad. It doesn't mean you become indifferent to everybody's opinion, it, it, because there always might be a kernel of truth in what criticism people might want to offer unto you. But rather than crawling into the fetal position or bowing up into the attack posture, you conduct yourselves with honor. So where he's going here, this, this focus on our identity, it is, is not mainly or exclusively about to be a source of encouragement to us, though it is that. He's talking about what is meant to really motivate honorable conduct. And what is meant to motivate that conduct is, first of all, it's, it's the way of integrity. Where what is truest of you in your private world becomes most clear and truest of you in your public world. And, and what is truest of you in your public world is of great advantage and interest to a watching world. That identity, that calling that you have, it, it, there is a calling that always proceeds from our identity, because what is the identity for? He says, we're a people for his own possession. Why? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, you are given a purpose. We talked about that at length last week. But your purpose is downstream of your identity. And so to understand about integrity, we're putting it in this way. If you believe you are yourself, as he tells you who you are, then a certain conduct will follow in which that which you are, which is truest of you yourself in private, will match what is truest of you in public. There's a, an old English phrase that you may remember. It's in uh, probably Jane Austen novels or elsewhere where, where someone will tell somebody, you forget yourself, sir. And in that moment, what they mean is you are acting in a way, your, your conduct is unbecoming what is true of you, and, and therefore you have forgotten yourself entirely. And, and what Peter is out to tell us is that don't forget yourself. Uh, do not forget uh, this identity that says unto you, you're a chosen race, you're precious of God. Because look, I, I know full well, in this season, we're frustrated. And in that season of frustration, this is what we're tempted with, becoming dismissive and derisive and, and maybe even shaming one another and being unwilling to listen to one another. And, and I think what Peter would say to us, if he were to see that in us, he would say, you, you, you forget yourself, sir. You must remember who you are. Look, uh, you remember the movie The Lion King. You remember Simba. His father is Mufasa. His father Mufasa dies tragically and the, the, the mean lion Scar warns Simba to go away into a, a forgotten country, into a wasteland and never return out of fear for his own life. And so he goes and he meets up with Timon and Pumbaa and they uh, live out the carefree life of Akuma Matata where they have no worries but also no responsibilities, no cares, no concerns. And what happens later? Rafiki, sort of the 
the town um, sage. He finds Simba and knocks him on the back of the head and leads him out into a savanna where they see where both of them have this vision of King Mufasa from the dead telling his son, you're the son of a king. And because of that identity, a certain, a certain honorable conduct follows from that. And that honorable conduct to go and defend an animal kingdom against terror and tyrants, he fulfills that. Not that he would gain an identity, but that he would live from an identity that's already been given to him. That's what Peter's telling us. What is the motivation to live honorably before everybody that finds us weird and strange? Because you're a chosen race, and that's the way of integrity. But there's a second motivation that Peter surfaces for us when it comes to the motivation for honorable conduct, and it's, it's the closest thing to a specific motivation that he mentions in the whole passage, and it's what he says there in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, if you want to do a little experiment and in mixed company say, we all should abstain from the passions of the flesh, you can set a stopwatch to how quickly somebody either sighs, chuckles, chokes, or shoots you a mocking glance. Because they believe, when you quote Peter like that, that you're throwing shade on everything that's good in this world. That everything that is rich and beautiful and delectable, you're saying is a bad thing, and therefore they assume, or they would interpret what Peter has to say there as um, a retreat into prudishness and uh, vapidness and to any lack of interest or delight. And I'm not going to go far to refute that conception other than to say, go read the Song of Solomon just once and tell me that the Bible is prudish. Or just do a word search in maybe even just the Old Testament of all the references to rich food and Good large feasts and great wine, and then tell me that Peter's, in Peter's mindset, he's out to drain the world of everything that's good and true and beautiful and savory. You, you can't make that claim. What Peter is out to say in telling us to abstain from the passions of flesh, he's, he's not throwing shade on, on desires for things. He's not, he's not dissing desire in and of itself. What he's telling us is to abstain from the desires that will either destroy you or enslave you. The Greek word he used there is the Greek word epithumia. And it's sort of a, an accentuated idea of desire. And it's a, it's a loose translation, I take on good authority, a loose translation of the word epithumia. It's over-desire. It's, it's desire that sort of bubbled over. It's, it's a desire for that either which is destructive or a desire for something in excess of its true value. You desire it too much. You, you ascribe to it too much importance, too much weight, and now it has you. And, you know, addiction is a modern word. You don't find the word addiction in, in a biblical frame of reference. And yet, what, what Peter means here by passions of the flesh are, are similar to the idea of addiction and that addiction, like these passions, are, are a desire that you will follow until that desire starts to hunt you and haunt you. Do you, do you know anything like that? Have you experienced Anything like that. The older you get, the more familiar with the concept you are. And if you're looking for a 
for a metaphor that maybe speaks to it the most poignantly than we've had about 80 years to read the Lord of the Rings. Because that ring, that ring of power, it's not about destroying a ring of power. It's about destroying this thing that lures you to possess it until it ends up possessing you. And that's what a passion of the flesh is. And that is what Peter is trying to rescue us from, trying to set us free from, that we might then be available to commit ourselves to honorable conduct upon a watching world. And that is why he speaks of these passions of the flesh as that which wages war against your soul, because there is no little switch that you flip to just sort of turn it off. If there were, we would have found it by now. And that's why he's trying to warn us away from those things that will destroy us or that will enslave us. And the question is, why, why does he even, why, why does he even preface that, that recommendation, that, that, that command by reminding us that we are sojourners and exiles? Now, a uh, funny, funny way of putting it to people who may very well have been native-born, where they're living as part of that new church community. Sojourners is just another word for immigrant. Exile is just another word for a resident alien. Why, why couch this command to abstain from the passions of the flesh by reminding them that they're sojourners and exiles, even if they're native-born? I'll tell you why. Because what he's calling them and us to abstain from is usually so embedded in the culture that we're part of that to abstain from it feels unnatural. And to indulge it feels very natural. Because it's how your culture has come to live and thrive and survive and flourish in some form of way, even in a distorted, destructive way. And so what Peter is out to tell us by reminding us that we're sojourners and exiles is that we have to be mindful of what citizenship lays the greatest claim to us. Look, you and I operate on a belief pretty often that we're just sort of independent thinkers, that we've, we've read this and we've heard that and we've made all of these you know, brilliant calculations and now we're just sort of thinking for ourselves. We don't think that we're really being influenced. And the truth of the matter is our culture shapes our behavior and most of the time in ways that we're not even aware of. And that is why Peter is having to remind us, what is that citizenship that lays the highest claim to us? That citizenship is of no citizenship of this earth. This citizenship is among and with the people of God who call Jesus Lord. And those who are able to see their culture for what it is and to affirm what is beautiful about it, but also to offer an alternative for what what will enslave them or what will destroy them, that is freedom. And so keeping our conduct honorable upon a watching world is just the way of freedom. So, so far we've said it's the way of integrity and it's the way of freedom. There's a third motivation. And that motivation has to do with something about persuasiveness. On the heels of the command, there in verse 12, you hear him say, Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he's saying is, you and I should not be surprised that in our best efforts to conduct, keep our conduct honorable among a watching world, we should not be surprised 
if that conduct provokes people, if that conduct is actually almost put in a frame of as if you're acting in an unrighteous way, there will be some who will respect you for the choices that you make. But don't be surprised if there are some people who think that your conduct is a threat to the very social fabric, that it is undermining our cohesiveness as a, potential, as a, as a people, as evil. Don't be surprised by that. Look, uh, you and I know that this world is, is spoken of as more polarized than ever before, and there's hard data on that. You, you can look at the charts that say in an earlier day, even when there was difference across ideological divides, there was still a great deal of overlap on a lot of things. But now you look at that chart and that overlap, that what, what remains of the overlap where we agree, it's almost razor thin. And in a setting like that, in a context like that, what happens? As we retreat more and more from one another's point of view, the inclination not only to disagree, but to shout down and condemn and cancel is all in order. You read the open letter in Harper's Magazine this week from 150 authors and writers that in this era, disagreement has given way to shame and shame has given way to silence. And in that setting, and in that context, you and I are tempted. We're tempted in one of two directions. We're tempted to retreat, or we're tempted to retaliate. And Peter is saying, neither works. Don't forget yourself. Don't forget the freedom that you found. And, but also don't forget this. He is not simply saying, keep your conduct honorable among the watching world because it's noble or it's the right thing to do. He's, he's saying you should do so with a certain kind of hope. That even those who might be put off, something might shift in them. Something might change. Those who revile you might actually come to respect you. There's a, a film that came out a couple years ago. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. It's based on a true story about a young man, a young private, Private Doss, who enlists in the Army in World War II, but uh, he does so on the condition that he will never fire or hold a weapon. He has come to be of help, but not to do so through violence. And you can imagine the response that he gets, the, the, the way he is disrespected and reviled and called a coward. And, in the scene that I'm about to show you, a bunch of the men of his, of his platoon have been pinned down and some of them have been hurt and he has made his way up to that, that high place and he has rescued many from their certain death and allowed others who were pinned down to find their way to safety. And he has done so without firing a shot, just taking himself with his courage to rescue them. And here in this scene, the one who thought him foolish and a coward for his conviction this is how he responds. All I saw was a skinny kid. I didn't know who you were. done more than any other man could have done in the service of his country. Now I've never been more wrong about someone in my life. I hope one day you can forgive me. We have to go back up tomorrow. 
realize that tomorrow is your Sabbath? Most of these men don't believe the same way you do. But they believe so much in how much you believe. And what you did on that ridge is nothing short of a miracle. And they want a piece of it. And they're not going to go up there without you. They thought him a fool. They thought him a flake. They thought him a danger to themselves. Because of his Christian conviction in his belief in, in Jesus' commitment to nonviolence. But he shows himself and his true self what had most formed him and what had most prepared him for. And that which began as reviling turned into respect and even something on the way of admiration. And that's a movie, and, and though it's, it's lodged in the past, and, and maybe it feels, because it's so cinematic, it, it feels unreal. But let me read you something that, that I read to several of you who were at one of our Wednesday night services a few weeks ago. It, it, it was spoken of on Twitter by, by a guy named Eric Weinstein, who is, uh, he has no faith in God. His, his faith is in physics as in finance, and he's a brilliant mind. But he said this a few weeks ago on Twitter. He said, we're increasingly unable to see the world through each other's eyes. Even if we've never met, there is a basic measure of love we can afford to give each other sight unseen. It may not be very large, but at some level it's possible, and it can be grown. I'd like to take credit for this, but I think a Jewish carpenter really developed this idea particularly beautifully and got there well before me. And prior art is prior art. If you think it is naive to believe that your actions can have an impact on somebody who finds no agreement in your belief, then I would bid you one Eric Weinstein. He is right. What we are not seeing in this world is the ability to see in the world through each other's eyes. What we are not seeing in our world more and more is the ability to lead with love, and instead we're always trying to win. He, he speaks the truth. But if you think it is naive to opt for that higher way and that better way, and it will never be persuasive, then I, I provide you for you. Exhibit A, Eric Weinstein, who finds in Jesus something rather compelling. Sheldon Van Auken was a friend of C.S. Lewis. He wrote that masterfully and poignant book, A Severe Mercy. And he put things rather poignantly in this way. He said this, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they're somber and joyless, when they're self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they're narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. But though it is just to condemn some Christians for these things, perhaps, after all, it is not just, though very easy, to condemn Christianity itself for them. Indeed, there are impressive indications that the positive quality of joy is in Christianity and possibly nowhere else. If that were certain, it would be proof of the highest order. What Peter is out to say to us is that our honorable conduct, it, it is more than just obedience. It is, it is more than just virtue. It is an argument. It is an argument that is persuasive 
to those humble enough to actually consider where it comes from and how it doesn't come from us naturally unless something is actually profoundly at work within us. And therefore, that proof comes from that conduct. And that proof, Sheldon Van Auken says, comes from a certain kind of joy. Which leaves us with the last question, as well as the last motivation. Where does that joy come from? That joy comes from the last, and I would argue, the most important motivation for anything that might ever help us to keep our conduct honorable among a watching world that finds us strange. It's so important because, as I said earlier at the beginning, there are all sorts of defective reasons why you might try to have an honorable conduct. But there's one that makes sure it is honorable and authentically honorable. And it's what he says there at verse 10, right on the, the very end of his description of our identity. He says this, Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. Peter is stealing, like an artist, straight from the book of Hosea. God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. She's wayward. She's faithless. She's wanted. And he says, go and marry her. Go betroth herself to you. Why? That he might be an object lesson, an example for Israel. Because what Homer will do for this prostitute named Gomer, so God will do for this nation. It is also wanton and wayward and giving herself to anybody that might take her in love. And what is true of that story, which, which functions as a lived parable, that is an analogy for how we think of ourselves. We all enter this world estranged from God. We are made in His image, but we are far from His intention. And just as God means to work with Israel through the words of Hosea, so God means to restore us and woo us back to Himself through the life and death of His Son. This is what we call the Gospel. It is through His death that our sin is atoned for. It is through His life that we are counted righteous in His sight because of the obedient life that Jesus lived, the life of honorable conduct among Jew and Gentile life from beginning to end and beyond. His life becomes our life, and it is by His death that our sin is forgiven. And what that means is God has brought us to Himself such that we now belong to Him like we never had belonged to Him, and all is an act of mercy. Once we who were not a people are now a people. Once we who had not been shown mercy have now been shown mercy. And all through this Son, all through the one who is Jesus, in whose name Peter writes and speaks to us. And that means when it comes to honorable conduct, the motivation is not so that you would end up belonging to God, but because you already believe that you do by His choice. And you seek to be honorable in your conduct. Not that you might obtain His mercy. Not that you might finally show yourself humble and worthy enough to receive it. But because you believe you've already got it. And what that helps us do is rescues us from the two deepest temptations when anybody tells you to be honorable in your conduct. One is to be self-righteous. Because is it not an entirely enormous temptation when you seek to be honorable in a public way to look down on those who are not so inclined and to be self-righteous about it. But the extent to which you believe 
your best gift comes to you on the basis of mercy alone, then there is no place for you to be self-righteous. Your honorable conduct is itself its own gift to you. Bernard of Clairvaux, 12th century monastic, so far from being able to answer for my sins, I can't even answer for my righteousness. Your honorable conduct is not of your own doing, and therefore you can't look down on anybody if they're not acting like you are. That's one temptation. The other is guilt. You and I will fail in honorable conduct. I already do. I already have. I will. And in that moment, you will be tempted to wallow at your failures to act honorably in public. And in that sense of guilt, you will think you can never belong to this Lord or that He would never do anything but tolerate you begrudgingly. And yet, if you believe that you are now His people at the cost of His own mercy, that you belong to Him because of what He did, then sure, yes, there will be opportunity and occasion to repent. But not so that you might belong to Him, but only because you have forgotten that you did and you want to be reminded that you are. That's where this honorable conduct has to come from your sense of His mercy and your belonging to Him on the basis of His grace. Otherwise, this call will crush you or fatten up your head. Brothers and sisters, you're being watched. You're being watched by children, whether they're yours or not. You're being watched by a world. And though that is their opinion, their, their perspective of you, of you is not the most important thing in the world. Far from it. I wonder if you believe, if in that belief that you're being watched, that it might drive you to these four motivations to keep your conduct honorable. In what you say, in what you do, in what you aspire to, and how you seek to let love lead and prevail. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.